Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's beginning to look a lot like Brexmas, so it's time to wrap up warm with this week's episode of Romaniacs. My name is Dorian Linsky. This week we'll be decking the halls with the following malfunctioning Christmas lights. Britain has finally made an enhanced offer to settle the EU divorce bill. That's £44 billion, over twice what Theresa May said we'd pay. How will this go down in Brussels and Brexit land? Will Britain's unceremonious exclusion from the European City of Culture programme make the enormity of Brexit any clearer to the head and sand contingent? And if that won't, then what about Davy Davis's heavily redacted impact statements? MPs have been after them for months, now they've got them. It transpires they've been edited for commercial confidentiality. So what use are they? Taking the longer view, we'll be asking what do we actually want to come out of the Brexit mess? Second referendum, soft Brexit or no Brexit at all? And how do we get there? To help us find the sixpence in this Brexmas pudding, we have the return of Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. How are Hello. you? Hello. Very well indeed. Thank you. We missed you last week uh, after your run-in with the protesters. How was that? Was that thrilling and validating? It was, well, it was not thrilling, realistically, <laughs> but it was validating. <laughs> no, I mean, I really enjoyed uh, being picketed. I am also the first picket line I've ever crossed, so that was actually quite sort of, <laughs> I, sort of I felt strange, sort of, you know, morally quite mixed up about that. But nevertheless, you know, I felt pretty good about it. I mean, to be fair, these were not the greatest protesters. They weren't particularly aggressive. There weren't any Molotov cocktails. They were quite creaky. But nevertheless, I was very glad that they put in the effort. And they had, didn't they have signs that said, get on with it, which I love that. That's the, the Brexit slogan, just get on with it. And this is your last proper recording of the year, isn't it? Cause I think it is. Well, I think away. I'm doing a little bitty, sort of a recording a bitty that we'll do for the, like, the Christmas or the New Year thing or something like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm away for December. I'm going to Antarctica, which is basically as far away from this place as I could possibly go. That is my plan, just to, to do that. To, to actual Antarctica? I'm, li- I'm literally going to Antarctica next week. Wow. I know. I will ask the penguins what they make of Brexit. I'll report in. Are you just going to hang out notes. in like a research station? Well, there's the boat. You're mostly just on the boat getting there. And then I think you spend sort of a couple of days there just feeling a bit lost and bleak. And then you come back. I think it's going to suit me down to the ground. It'll be just yeah. much like this. <laughs> <laughs> and here is Ros Taylor, editor of Democratic Audit and forensic Brexologist. Hi, Ros. Welcome back. Hello. 
What's Democratic Audit been uncovering recently? We had some quite exciting stuff last week, quite exciting for me anyway, about uh, social media. Stay with me. It's actually um, a bloke in America, Nick Hanspack, who had a look at people's Facebook feeds and he mocked up some Facebook feeds because he wanted to see what people did with political news on Facebook. Basically, if you see political news on Facebook and none of your friends recommend it, you just ignore it like you would normally mm. would because, yeah. But if your friends recommend it or if your friends comment on it, you're much more likely to read it so far so obvious. The interesting thing for me, though, was that if people uh, agree with the stuff, they're about 26% more likely to about to look at it. If they disagree, it's 40%. You are actually more likely to read stuff that you disagree with than you agree with. So oh. it kind of blows apart the received wisdom about echo chambers and us never getting exposed to stuff we disagree with. But this is the huge but. We only comment on it to explain how much we disagree with it. All this is about separating us into our tribe so that we know now what we disagree with and we take our sides. So it's having this polarising effect, but it's not an echo chamber. Well, this explains why you get all these um, people on The Guardian comment threads who are clearly no fan of The Guardian and its works. Mm. And they just pop over to, to our bubble to um to shout at us yeah yeah and i remember when i worked for the guardian that was a, a vast a vast proportion of the commenters were there and it's it, to some extent it you know kept you on your toes but i think on social media it doesn't hmm. because it's not it's not an open platform it's a completely different thing going on on facebook it's still a sort of mild improvement on the way like i remember the first time i ever got a proper sort of proper Twitter backlash against me, which was two or three days, which I just got completely lost. I'd done some stuff on safe spaces and saying the safe space thing is not a particularly good idea in universities, blah, blah, blah. And it sort of went from, you know, the, the British lot to the American lot. So by the end of it, my Twitter was just this perm... It, I couldn't even read it. It was just people just screaming abuse at me for days on end. And I remember going home, I'd written a piece on this, sort of going, look, this is where this might not be such a good idea, but on the other hand, this, and so And I thought, well, look, at least we'll get good traffic on the site. And then I remember going, looking onto the site for two days, and there was just no change in traffic whatsoever, because no one had read the piece. It was just what? that thing of you just get yeah, to attack they on the They abuse you without thing. reading the piece. Who would have thought that this would take place? But nevertheless, that's why it works. So to, <laughs> even if they're just going on to read the piece to then write abuse underneath it that still seems to me like a step up from where I thought we were I do like the idea that in order to post a comment or to, or to, in fact, maybe send an abusive tweet, you have to answer a question based on information contained in paragraph five of the piece you're responding to. If you don't know it, you can't comment. Before we get started, Roz, would you like to do the important announcements? Absolutely. If you're looking for Christmas gifts for the Remainers in your life, may we recommend the Romaniacs Christmas Market. We've got exclusive T-shirts and attractive headwear. Is that a hat? I guess it's hat. In all sizes and at least two European languages, French and German. Yeah, but not Finnish. We're only open this week, but order quickly and UK delivery is guaranteed by Christmas. Have a look at romaniacs.myshopify.com. And if you just want to support Romaniacs, but without having to tell anyone about it on your T-shirt, remember you can back us on the crowdfunding pa- uh, platform Patreon, as well as a warm glow of pride and a shout out on the show. You can get Romaniacs mugs, bags and T-shirts that nobody else will get. Details at Romaniacs.com. Thanks, Russ. Now, shall we open the first window on the Brexit News Advent Calendar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Firstly, to nobody's surprise, Britain has caved at the last minute and made the hefty offer for a divorce settlement that we all knew we'd have to pay if we wanted trade talks to start. When we recorded this week's show, Downing Street was still playing down the offer of 50 million euros, but it looks a lot like that's what's going to happen. Predictably, the Brexiteers have gone crazy. Nigel Farage said that for the EU, Christmas has come early. 
So this seems like it was inevitable. So why didn't we make the offer earlier, get it out of the way, get on with all the other negotiations? Yeah, well, I mean, because, you know, people keep on pretending that the EU doesn't have us over a barrel. They've always had us over a barrel simply because of the way that the whole thing is structured. They have the advantage in terms of time. I mean, I'm not saying anything that anyone that listens to this podcast doesn't already understand. But at the core of it, if you go into any negotiation and at the end of the time of a very limited time frame, partner A remains on status quo and partner B goes into status quo minus, then partner A has the advantage in negotiation. You get to the end of our time period, we can't handle nuclear material. We can't run our aviation industry. That's just to name two things. Let alone what goes on with our manufacturing goods, with our agricultural goods, all of that. So in that kind of scenario, it's perfectly obvious that the EU was always going to have the upper hand. But because this has been typified not by a sort of sober assessment of where we are in terms of the dynamics and the systems in which we're operating, but instead by this kind of jingoistic, tub-thumping bullshit, we now find ourselves completely surprised about the fact that we've capitulated on the things that people like us were saying we were going to capitulate on for the last 18 months. The important thing here as well is that this is not the final bill. It may be spun as a final bill, but it isn't, because this is just the bill that enables us to go forward, possibly, if the EU still agrees, and we don't know whether they have yet, that enables us to go forward to the possibility of trade talks. And it is pretty much inevitable that the EU is going to demand uh, money in order to, uh, to get access to the single market, particularly if we insist on uh, curbing freedom of movement. Mm. Uh, and uh, yet we still want to have access to it. So this is just part one of the bill. Part two will come further down the line and it could be many billions more. Yeah, I mean, this is a basically what we, it's worth sort of teasing it all apart, I suppose, really. The first one is, you know, the EU deals in seven year financial cycles. Now, we signed up to that financial cycle. Those cover everything from a bridge in Poland to, you know, medical research in France, everything that's being spent in the EU. We signed up to it. Now, that goes on for seven quarters after we would leave in March 2019. <laughs> the EU's argument is that this has upset Dorian so much, he started sneezing <laughs> with horror. And like, um, so the, the EU's argument is basically it's a contract, mate. You'd signed the contract. It's like, you know, you don't get to go halfway through a holiday and decide you don't like the hotel and go downstairs and go, well, fine, we're going to pull away now and we're not going to pay you the rest. No, you're on the hook. And uh, that's the basis for it. And that, I think, makes moral sense in the, you know, if I was, you know, if, I, if I'm sort of arranging the Airbnb with my friends to go on holiday and one of them drops out, we made that decision on expenditure on the basis of there being a set number of people there. And if you take away a really significant net contributor to the budget, those would have been different decisions that they would have made at the time. So there's a moral argument. There is also arguably a legal one, although I think that, you know, who gives a shit? Because really, where, what court are you going to actually take that to in the end? It doesn't really make any difference. You know, what is it, the UN? I mean, it's, it's just not going to happen. But most importantly, there is a real politic argument of you're going to pay because you want to get on to talk about the future trade stuff. And they're the ones that decide whether you've done that. So that was always going to be the case. The, the final then addendum to that is the pension stuff. And that's why we're going to be paying this off for a really long time. We're basically going to pay it off until everyone dies that's worked as a bureaucrat at the EU and there's quite a few of them because that whole time we're going to be paying pensions and I think this is key to the British to the British attitude has been to smear the sort of methodology to smudge it around to extend it so that we'll never really know what the final number is until decades from now and she can do that classic thing that May always does saying one thing to the domestic audience another thing to the to the Europeans can say to the others I think you know even on 40 that you were saying it could be quite a bit more than that it could be all the way up to 100 but we'll never really know because it will all come down to the sort of murky methodological discussion that people will broadly tune out on and just take get the take home message of we're about to get you know pay over the odds for something that we were previously getting for free so if we knew that this was coming is the sort of hard brexiter outrage is this just theater 
Is this just like I'm not Farage saying, has to say something? I'm, I'm only saying I'm only seeing Farage doing it, and the reason why I'm only seeing Farage do it is it because people who are actually in government who support back the Brexit, you know, Johnson and 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 Gove and so on, are of course not going to be outraged because they're prepared to pay this bill to leave the EU and they know they have to do it, so they're not going to be outraged. There's no point in them stoking up, you know, anger among the public. They want to be seen ultimately to have helped Britain to get a deal. So it's only going to be the outsiders like Farage who are going to make a big fuss. I think there's, I mean, there's Andrew Lillico. There's a, a few other. You're right. Oh, he was minor, so thing. muted. He was like, "Oh, we really should have said it." What's earlier. the deal with Andrew Lillico? Because I keep seeing him appear in my timeline, and I looked at how many followers he's got, and it, it's very small. Yeah, really. But he just seems to be such a kind of like a big, a big deal. People are constantly engaging with him, and I don't really know why. Because what he's an he... economist, and so you know he's got that. Uh, well, you know, people think he must know what he's talking about, and he's got that credibility going on. There aren't very many economists out there who are pro Brexit, so he's he's got that, uh, you know. Rarity value, scarcity yeah, value. He's just got a good niche. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think that there's also this split within Remain and within Leave about the No Deal thing. Loads of Leavers would like the No Deal. The really sort of you know the sort of almost biblical Leavers of just the total separation origin story stuff. And I think that there's quite a few Remainers who feel the same way, who feel that if we push the point into no deal, we've got a year of really quite horrific outcomes in order to reverse course, the sort of high stakes gamble remain sort of... Fight on the contradictions. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not a bad argument. I think it's it's much more likely that we would remain if we're facing no deal from, say, March next year onwards for the 12 months to demonstrate that. I think the public would, you know, there's a really good chance the public would turn against it. It's just that... For me personally, I'm 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 a really low stakes gambler. Like when I go to Vegas, I'm nervous. I like I'm pathetic. I like put like a ten dollars down and I'm trying to make it the whole night. You know, like I just get too nervous. So you, if if that goes into the high stakes gambling thing on Brexit, what if you're wrong? You know, mm. what if the no deal really does happen? And it's generally speaking, not the sort of middle class people who talk about this stuff who would suffer the consequences of that. It's generally people with manufacturing jobs, with agricultural you know jobs, working class people who would really suffer the ill effects of that. And Ill effects they would be the kind of that are so pronounced that you could easily imagine it leading to a much more extreme political culture on the other hand than we had going in. So personally, I'm, I'm not one of them, but I think that the weird reaction to it comes from the fact that both Leave and Remain are quite split on whether they actually ultimately want to deal. And finally, what does this mean for the uh, the magic money tree, which seems to be magically sprouting money really? all over the place? There's the there's the DUP branch now. There's a whole kind of a fifty billion you know, Euro branch. It's like, it seems really good. It seems like there's loads of money on the tree. It's almost like governments can borrow money, isn't it? Like, it's so strange. And actually, if they want to spend money, it's actually perfectly possible for them to go borrow money. And that is essentially a magic money tree. And And where where do they keep the tree? Because this is an important question. Is the tree in the treasury? How big is the tree? It's in the basement. They keep it in the basement. Because I'm not an economist. (laughs) Or a... Arborologist? <laughs> what the people that study trees? Then? I know. That's a good call, though. I mean, I would go with arborologist. Why not? Why yeah, not yeah. That? Okay. I mean, ultimately, they're going to spend the money. You even look at the kind of the data they come out just on country of origin checks. If we're at the customs union without some kind of arrangement there, it's expected to cost us 25 billion a year. You know, the, the idea that, you know, chucking this, this kind of money at this kind of scenario in order to secure a trade deal with our largest trading partner 
just pay the money. You know, this is this is not where the major financial losses are. The major financial losses are in, you know, the complete downgrading of the British economy as it severs itself from all of its previous trading arrangements. And this isn't the only thing. I mean, there's the citizenship issue, which I think will be fairly okay to resolve in the end. And then there's Northern Ireland. And I think we're in a really bad place on Northern Ireland. And what is and that, that has got to be resolved before we move on as well. Well, we'll be getting to that bad place later. Great. <laughs> Not saying Northern Ireland is a bad place. It's a, it's a <laughs> lovely place. Meanwhile, it's been the week when Britain's losses got real. Within 24 hours, the European banking regulator went to Paris and the European medicines regulator went to Amsterdam. This happened after we recorded last week's show. Then we lost our place on the International Court of Justice to India. Not strictly Brexit related, but not great. But perhaps the most painful, because it was so symbolic of how we've marginalised ourselves, was Britain's ejection from the European City of Culture programme after 2023. The European Commission dashed the hopes of Leeds, Dundee and other British cities who have been preparing bids by confirming that only countries that were in the EU, the European Economic Area, or in the process of becoming members, were eligible for inclusion. So we're now out of the programme that did so much for Liverpool and Glasgow. It was estimated to have generated £750 million for Liverpool from an outlay of £170 million. The British government's reaction was predictably blustering. Theresa May said, we disagree with the European Commission's decision and are particularly disappointed we've been informed of their new position after UK cities have submitted their final bids. Tim Montgomery accused the EU of spite for applying the rules of the game. And Arts Minister John Glenn, who clearly hadn't read the rules or his own department's memo warning about this, tweeted, crazy decision by European Commission over Capital of Culture 2023 for leaving the EU, not Europe... My team at DCMS, not Europe, (laughs) we're not physically leaving Europe. My team at DCMS are speaking with the five cities right now on the way forward. This this sort of worried me that as an arts minister, he seemed to have no idea how this works. I can't believe that you had any belief that he would. They don't seem to... I long ago believed that any of them... When you look it up before tweets... Oh, no, I suppose, no, because the bluster... You don't want the facts to get in the way of the bluster. It's just like, how can this be? Yeah, it doesn't... You're being very 2015 about this. It doesn't doesn't matter whether, you know, whether it's true or not or any... That's just completely irrelevant. I mean, I'm almost... (laughs) I'm so sorry. I mean, you know, all of the... They they knew. I mean, they were were reliably informed. They, They understood all of this. It's not... It's, it, they know every time they do all of that. They know when they say we're going to leave the European Court of Justice jurisdiction, and then the next month sign up for the to the uh, patent court that that has a connection to the European Court. Of, I mean, none of the, they know this stuff. They just don't care. And I mean, soft power does matter. Soft power is is sort of important in terms of influence. It's important financially. There's just something kind of um, just so dispiriting about this it just seems i mean i think the intensity of the reaction was because it did seem so symbolic that it was just like you're not just the loss of money that the the people had spent on the bids already but it just seemed like a sign of britain's influence and prestige sort of diminishing yeah i think it feels a bit like that to us but i think it will not have much impact on public opinion at all because Mm. uh, for a start it's the future um, it's things that might have happened and now they're not going to happen. Well, you know. And uh, the other issue, of course, is that it's about EU funding for uh, which, and people do not know where what that the EU funds things and how they fund things. I, I don't think they really think the EU sort of 
was behind these these capital of culture things any meaningful way because if you ask people in places like Wales if a road with an EU sign on it was paid for by the EU they tend to say oh no not really it, it's there's no <laughs> real sense that the e, that EU money is behind this there's a feeling that oh the pot of money will come from somewhere else if we really need it and that's why I don't think it will cut through I mean I, I didn't you know care very much myself because I like the word culture, I, I always find that really off-putting. People always say culture. That's, would they that's always a say, bold you, statement. I reach for my Because usually revolver. it's like little <laughs> tiny bits of food with seaweed in it or opera or jazz or something. I just think it just looks fucking boring. And I don't want anything to do with it. But, but I noticed that people did seem to care. With my, you know, my Twitter kind of people, when I, I was frankly surprised. <laughs> people care about opera and jazz. Was this... I mean, was this a surprise? Surprising, surprise so, they do. But okay. also, they did seem to right. care about the city of culture thing. There's a really good Chris Deeran piece in, I think it's the Scotsman or the, the Herald, I think, um, where he sort of talks about how he, he got a knock from that. And actually, he, this really did seem to have a big impact on him. It's a beautiful piece, actually, if you could read it. If only I could remember which newspaper it was for. But anyway, it's by Chris Deeran. Fantastic sort of piece where he, I think the title of it is I'm not coming to terms with Brexit. And the reason I'm not is because of the ghastly behaviour of those who are proposing it. And the total inability to demonstrate to me that anything good will come from it. But it really felt like this was a moment for him that during the course of the week, it really depressed him in a way that I kind of, I would have basically not even thought twice about it if it wasn't for the fact that my Twitter was going through a protracted nervous breakdown over it for a couple of days. Yes, I mean, I suppose you could say, oh, it's a, it's a real sort of chattering class preoccupation. But as apparently a member of the chattering classes, <laughs> you know, I suppose the, the symbol is, it just seemed so, I mean, if you do believe, uh, unlike the kind of, uh, you know, the gung-ho Brexiters, that Britain's prestige is, is being diminished and we're not, as Daniel Hannan argued in that remarkable piece he wrote last year. Did you see that that got... I did, the special archive version of his sci-fi masterpiece. Unbelievable. <laughs> Just like, the year is 2025, Independence Day. We've and this, our backs. this mad, you know, the kind of British jetpack circle the skies. <laughs> like, it was demented. Um, and... I suppose, you know, but if you do if you do sort of actually have some sort of pride in Britain and, and you know, and think that things like cities of culture matter, you know, they don't matter sort of, you know, to vast ways of the you know, job market or whatever. But if you think they matter symbolically and in terms of how Britain sees to the world, it, it did seem like quite a blow, even though, you know, like I said, probably not in the great scheme of things, but it did seem mm. very symbolic. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Not much opera and jazz in Antarctica, I'm assuming. <laughs> why, why do you think I'm going? <laughs> the only way to escape Ronnie Scott. One more for this week. David Davis has finally bowed to pressure and released the fabled top-secret impact statements to the Brexit committee, who were horrified to find them covered in black ink and deletions because economic assessments aren't quite so useful if you take all the economic examples out. <laughs> MPs were furious. Chukra Munna said it stinks of a cover-up, and Starmsey said that Davis was making a mockery of the whole process. Was this to be expected? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he had to release them, so um, he redacted them. And I mean, there's not much precedent for something like this, except in terms of freedom of information and what people, what journalists in particular can get hold of in that and what excuses government can come up with for not giving them that information. And one of those uh, is the public interest test. So basically, uh, governments, uh, departments, agencies and so on can withhold something if they say it's going to have a negative impact uh, on ongoing discussions about this policy. Now, you know, clearly, clearly David Davis feels he's able to say that if he releases 
what may be some quite negative news or negative predictions about the British economy, that will have a a poor impact. And in that sense, uh, he's absolutely right. But from the other side, uh, you had uh, people like Molly Scott Cato, MEP, arguing that you the uh, the businesses in question needed to know this information in order to plan and at the moment it, it, it and previously it was being withheld from them and they couldn't plan so you have this kind of catch 22 going on where if they don't know what they don't know won't hurt them oh what they don't don't know might hurt them. Oh, which way is it? Oh, I don't know. My head's exploding. But anyway, um, it, there's the argument about prejudicing commercial interests, which um, also uh, emerges in um, in freedom of information rejection letters. That too could could come into play because this is about uh, sexual analyses. So it was this was always going to happen, but. At least, I suppose, it will concentrate minds on the number of sectors that are likely to be impacted because there's about 50, 50 of them, is that 58, right? 58, yeah, thanks, Ian. I knew oh. you'd know. <laughs> 58 of them. Because I'm although, emotionally broken inside. Although, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the part of his brain that other people have culture in. <laughs> You're not going to let this shit go. Right? <laughs> it's where Efter lives. <laughs> no, but the the important the the important thing as well to remember about this is that these these paper uh, sexual analyses are not real because you'll recall that when Davis was first asked for them, he explained that they didn't really exist, hmm. and what he's had to put together and cobble together never really existed in the first place. <laughs> so, ultimately. <laughs> If we can deny their existence before they appear, then can we deny their existence when they're redacted? Well, yeah, quite possible. If you're cobbling mm. something together, are you allowed to just put in black redaction boxes where there is nothing? There was never anything there, but it makes it look as if there was. Wow. Can you redact nothing? Can you redact like, nothing to make it look as if the, there was some stuff there? He hadn't, <laughs> hadn't actually written anything. He's, I mean, they, the thing is, they've been referring to these papers. It's not just recent. I mean, they, they, you know, just looking at a... Uh, uh, because uh, my life is so fantastic, I was looking at a Lord subcommittee hearing from uh, 2016 on the EU internal market. And there, Lord Bridges, who's a parliamentary undersecretary at DexEU, said, we've got these impact assessments. We've got them in every area. We've used the following methodology that we took from the Bank of England, being quite precise, being very, you know, talking quite specifically about what he was doing. That was literally one year ago. Then you, you know, fast forward to the to the DexEU committee, uh, to the Brexit committee hearing with David Davis, where he's talking to Seema Malhotra. And she's asking him over and over again, what have you done with these statements? Have you shown them to the prime minister? And she's specifically saying the impact assessments. Have you shown the impact assessments to the prime minister? He's like, she's seen the first, she's seen this first page. She hasn't read all of them because they're in excruciating detail. Says, have you shown them to the various secretaries of state? Well, they haven't seen this, but they would have seen this. He's, he's, quite precisely answering questions about these things, which a couple of days later, his department puts out messages going, oh, well, actually, they don't exist and they never existed. If so, his behavior is quite troubling. And it's not clear that he should be in his position. Because if someone was to ask me about a book that I had written that doesn't exist, like, I would say that it doesn't exist. But I wouldn't start saying, well, this, you know, my mum's read it. That would be fucking madness. <laughs> you know, so what is he doing? Is he, is, he, is he unhinged? It's perfectly possible when you look at him, he doesn't look fully hinged. So, I mean, all of that, that is a, a genuine avenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One hinge. <laughs> exactly, just, just the one hinge on Davis. And, and there is, I mean, that, that seems really rather troubling. Then what's really concerning, of course, is that his guys from his department really went out gunning for journalists who started saying that those reports did exist. I've got emails myself. Plenty of my colleagues were getting emails, quite aggressive emails. What you're saying here is flatly wrong. You don't have any right to say the Secretary of State is lying. You think like, well, I mean, what do you, 
what are you doing? Like, we've got the transcripts. He didn't say this in some smoky room somewhere. He said it in places where people are typing the words that are coming out of his mouth and then publishing them onto the internet. We can get them. We know how to use Hansard. We know how to use the Parliament website. It's one of the very few things that political journalists do know how to use. <laughs> and so you sort of think, like, well, you've got yourself into this extraordinary position, almost like what De uh, Theresa May did during the election of nothing has changed, nothing has changed. Now, you can do whatever you want. You can U-turn. You can make up whatever you like. Do not, for the life of you, start telling journalists that the things that they have seen and heard, they did not see and hear. Because if you do, they will lose all respect for you. And even the quite Brexity journalists, even the quite Brexity MPs, are basically starting to very, very lose, lose any sort of asp any, any touch of faith, really, in David Davis over this. He's handled it in an absolutely spectacularly shoddy way that would be surprising were it not for the fact that it happens with such alarming regularity. Yeah, and I mean, let's, let's just take one step back and think, what if these didn't exist? What if they, in fact, had not done any any um, research on the impact of Brexit mm. on these different sectors. What would that say about the government? I mean, that's, that would be terrifying. We know they didn't do enough preparation before the referendum because they weren't expecting to lose it. But if they these didn't exist, Jesus, I mean, it would be even more terrifying. So it's a catch-22, as I say. You know, he's, he's, well, if they really claim they didn't exist, well, he looks like an even more of an idiot. Well, exactly. now he, of course, has to go to see the Brexit committee again. John Burko, who I think has been handling this incredibly Looking well, actually. He's, he's a good speaker. He's, he's doing really, really well here. Um, basically said to him, look, you've got to, go. you've got to go. You've got days to go. You don't have weeks to go. There's no, there's no other um, appointment that you have that takes priority over this. You've got to go there. That suggests to me that Burko is actually pretty open to some of these ideas floating around about possibly he's in contempt of Parliament. After all, that motion did not say that Dexu had the right to redact it. It said the committee had the right to redact it, if anyone was going to be able to do it. The idea was they send it to the committee. The committee takes responsibility for what it should and shouldn't come out. So all of this potentially adds up to quite a dangerous scenario for Davis. I mean, something that could actually get constitutionally really quite troubling for him and obviously has all of the reputational damage around it as well. Yeah, and it's really good actually that Parliament is doing this because they rolled over so comprehensively after having the right to establish, you know, that they have the right to vote on, the, uh, on, on whether we should invoke Article 50. And that was pretty mortifying. So it is good that there are, I think, 55, uh, so around 55 different inquiries, select committee inquiries going on Brexit. And people are actually watching what happens in select committees, which never used to happen. You know, they share mm. the footage of Davis being interrogated by Hillary Benn on, 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 on Twitter. And yeah, OK, that's not a large number of people, but it's a hell of a lot more than before. Uh, <laughs> people are actually paying attention to what happens, not just in the chamber, but outside it, which is, for a political nerd, quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about it uh, last week, the Northern Irish border, and it's, it's still um, weirdly not sorted out in the last week. Turned out to be a key sticking point. In EU official told Reuters, the UK will need to give credible assurances as to how to avoid a hard border before December the 4th. If the Irish Republic is not happy with the border plans, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar says he will veto any deal. Uh, last week we talked about how, how the Sun responded to that. Um, you can rely on Liam Fox to make things worse. On Sunday, he declared there will be no border decision until after a uh, UK-EU trade deal, a flat contradiction of the EU's position. And on Radio 4, Kate Hoey went full Trump, insisting that if there was a hard border, a big, beautiful hard border, then Ireland would have to pay for it. Mm. 
Because what everyone really needs to know when they're talking about the intricacies of custom border arrangement is what the MP for Vauxhall says, especially when she talks absolute fucking dog shit. <laughs> so she says it in the morning, and then, it, and then lo and behold, BBC producers calling her in to every fucking station they've got throughout the day for her to just come in and just keep on saying it. And you just think, like, not only is she completely irrelevant to this discussion, but what she's saying is factually and morally wrong. So why is that the criteria upon which you invite her in to, to, to start talking to her? But I, guess it's that, but I guess it's that balance. It's that, that's the Andrew Lillico thing. It's just like there are so few people on that side with any kind of mm. prestige that even people who are clearly not up to it, like Kate Hoey, have to be brought out because, oh, she's the Labour, you know, her or Frank Field. It's like they're your big She, she tweeted a photo, by the way, on the, the Swiss border the other day. With all of these sort of Swiss border guys, with this border infrastructure behind her, she tweets this photo going, oh, this is just to show that you can have all these creative solutions. Um, and we can do the same thing in Ireland as long as we're all positive about it. And you just think, Kate, you're stood behind the fucking border infrastructure that you have promised not to put in Ireland while saying that we can use this as a solution to the Irish thing. Doesn't make any sense at all. She's been completely appalling. The Irish problem obviously, you know, continues to have no solution to it whatsoever. By definition, if it's a customs union, it's going to have a customs border. The new Brexit response is to say, well, we'll unilaterally uh, drop the border and dare the EU to do the same thing. Basically, that's completely illiterate, babbling nonsense. A, that's against WTO rules. You can't come up with that outside of an FTA, outside of free trade agreement. You can't just unilaterally decide that you're going to have that arrangement with someone that, you know, is, is discrimination, prejudice in, in your trading arrangements. But also, imagine what that is asking of the EU. Like, imagine that we go out and we do a trade deal with the Americans where we accept, um, you know, chlorinated chicken, hormone-injected beef, all of that kind of stuff. The EU has rules against that stuff. So now they can, the Americans can just import to us or export to us into our market that kind of standard of meat product, which then has an open border where it can go into the EU. They would basically lose their ability to maintain any kind of standards within their economy. Now, what country, what organization could possibly tolerate that kind of arrangement? Certainly the Brexiters wouldn't, who spent the last 18 months buggering on about taking back control and then going, oh, but I'm sure you guys wouldn't mind just giving up any kind of control over, you know, any part of your economy. So there is no answer to it there. The question really is, how does Ireland play this? It's a very fine tightrope. You know, if you veto now, you get no deal. That's no good. I think probably there'll be more pressure from the Europeans, from the other member states, now that the money's looks like it's been sorted to go, come on, guys, do you think you could budge a bit? Maybe we could move along. And yet, once it comes out of the first phase, his veto loses its power. So it's a very, very delicate balancing act for Ireland. And I'm very, very grateful that I'm not part of the people, you know, one of the people that has to make that call. I think we all are. (laughs) 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 One thing we very briefly need to talk about, by the way, is, of course, the third part of the puzzle for moving on from first phase is the EU citizens and the British citizens in the EU. Now, that is still not sorted. There is still a problem with the role of the European Court of Justice. British government isn't going to have any role for it. The Europeans are insisting that that does need to be a part of it. There are some whispers that Downing Street might allow British courts to refer up to the ECJ, that that might be a solution. Other whispers, they might be prepared to countenance something involving the EFTA court to take that role. British citizens in the EU are very concerned that they're going to lose freedom of movement. For loads of them, let's say they're in catering or they're musicians or something like that, they need to move around. And none of the deals that are being put down by the EU allow them to do that. They allow them to stay in the country that they're in 
and possibly one other country that borders it if that's where they go to work. But those guys that base their thing on having to move around all the time and not seeing anything from the EU side that would continue to give them those rights. So I find it's a bit disconcerting that increasingly we seem to be forgetting about this issue. But the issue is not solved. It's close to being solved. It's not solved. Hard to see how it will be solved in the next two weeks. And it would be nice if people started paying a bit more attention to these guys that, you know, a few short months ago, all the Brexiters and the Remainers said that they were also terribly concerned about. Moving on, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about how dreadful Brexit will be and how it's already going wrong. <laughs> but we seldom talk about what we want to happen. Do we want Brexit to be watered down until it's hardly Brexit anymore? A pale shadow of Brexit? Super soft Brexit? Ghost Brexit? <laughs> Do we want a transition period that extends forever? Brexit, infinity wars. Do we want a second <laughs> referendum on whatever deal Davis manages to cobble together? Or do we just want Theresa May to suddenly grow a spine, realise she has nothing to lose, stand up on the doorstep of number 10 and call the whole thing off? And whatever our preferred outcome, how are we going to get there? So, Roz, start with you. What's your, what's your dream scenario here? My dream scenario? Oh, well... This is not this is not going to happen. My dream scenario, I think, and I've uh, my dream scenario is that the entire pro Brexit media forces of this country change their minds, and that all the people on the Tory backbenches holding Theresa May to ransom suddenly see sense, and that isn't going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, I would, uh, you know, I, I would like people to suddenly realise the, the 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 joys of the single market, but let's face it, they're not. Um, and I have to be realistic about that. Do I want a super soft Brexit? Well, yeah, who wouldn't? I mean, Andrew's Brexit, great. I mean, that would be nice. Um, let's think. Let me think about something that might actually happen that might be achievable. We are in a long transition period that starts. Uh, in March 2019 and gets extended and extended and extended as we try and sort out the incredibly convoluted and difficult talks that will enable us to flog things to other countries in a reasonably easy way. This doesn't go very well. Slowly public opinion moves. And I think, you know, I was thinking today that the best analogy for me is the First World War. And there were hundreds of thousands of young men coming home in coffins or being buried in France. And still people were happy. That's a drastic solution. But public opinion did not shift for a long time, given the disaster that was the First World War. Mm. And that was a hell of a lot worse even than what's happening now. Uh, It takes a long time for things to turn around. But I think there will be a gradual realisation that actually it's useful to be in the single market. And whichever government we have, that we might be able to accept being in the single market. I think the other rest of the EU will ultimately probably want some sort of stricter controls on freedom of movement. And those will be things that we will be happy to sign up for, particularly as our economy will be in such a state that very few people are actually coming here anymore uh, to, to work, which will create fewer tensions around immigration. So what I would hope that would happen would be that there is what people have called a uh, three-speed Europe. Sorry, this is going to send everyone to sleep. But the middle is the Eurozone. The outer bit is a group of countries who are doing the kinds of stuff that Emmanuel Macron wants to do at the moment with greater cooperation, basically dealing with each other better. Then there's a third circle, which would ideally have us in it, in the single market, market, not actually making very many important decisions, but still able to trade with Europe and with a certain degree of freedom of movement. So that is what I hope realistically will happen. 
Is that enough? Is, is that... Uh, <laughs> That's good. That sounds like a plan. I could go into a lot more detail, but you don't want me to, do you? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I, I have a very similar... I have a very similar vision. Um, so like, I mean, yeah, that's what I was going to say as I well. Mean, the, honourable, the, honourable, the honourable lady makes... Three speed, three speed. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, like, it was always this sort of... Th- you know, you'd, you'd often find, like, Hofstadt would talk about associate membership and things like that. You'd often find guys like... You know, even back in back in the day, you'd find UKIP guys, you'd find Aaron Banks talking about Norway not so long before the referendum itself, you know, and certainly you had people like Daniel Hannan talking about the Swiss deal, which is ultimately bilateral. Now, all of these ideas don't have to be so far apart. Most of the time, they're just different words for quite similar things, which everyone in Europe accepts as the, mul- the need for a multi-speed Europe. The people that were some of the most helpful people, I remember when I was writing the book, were, were not really trade negotiators, but strategists. And they would sort of say, look, the problem is if you go into a negotiation and you're not offering your partner anything positive that they get in addition to where they are now, you, it's going to be very hard to convince them to do anything. And all we ever had to offer the EU was we're going to help you limit the damage of what we have done. And we didn't even have very good ideas for how we would do that. But in actual fact, the EU wants some kind of, you know, a new storage category for an outer sort of an outer way of doing things. They hate bespoke stuff. They really despise it. They want storage categories. And we could have provided that, I think, exactly to complement what Macron and Merkel were doing and consolidation. And to start addressing the problem that they've had, you know, all the way back since, since really since the EA was created, of those promises to places like Norway and Iceland and Liechtenstein, of saying they originally promised them, you will have some rights over decision making. And then they retracted that promise. They broke that promise. And now I think countries like Norway and Iceland and Liechtenstein deserve to have rights over decision making. You're right, not over everything, but over some aspects of the economy, in order that befits the kind of privileges that they get and also the kind of amount of control that they give up. And Britain, frankly... I think can have a leadership role in that kind of idea of Europe in a way that it just can't when it's the great big, you know, continental thing that it's clearly not comfortable with. So what concerns me is that even if Brexit is, you know, stopped or frozen or, or more likely, as you say, that the transition sort of fossilizes into a status quo, is that we'll end up with one of those systems where we're just perpetually upset with everything. They're perpetually thinking that we're a pain in the ass and we're sort of half in, half out, can't make our mind up. And that, that kind of poisonous relationship grows rather than just fundamentally recalibrating that relationship, putting us in the outside, but ideally the leader of that kind of outside grouping and having a, a much more transactional economic relationship with Europe rather than the more political one which had been envisioned up until now. And I still think that would be a great offer. I still think this was a historical moment that was just primed for that kind of compromise between the British and the European side. Everything was in the right place for it. And we didn't take it because we are not people right now that deal with moderation or with compromise with people that deal with very broad, brushstroke, colourful, simplistic, puritanical solutions. And that's what we're going for. And that's pretty much where we're going to end up on our ass. I've actually become more sort of hardline over the last few months. And I'm, I'm, list- <laughs> I'm hearing your practical <laughs> solutions. And I, I do like them. <clears throat> but on a fundamental level, I do just think that I just wish that we did live in a world where one could go, this was a, like a terrible mistake. That we should never have announced the referendum on these terms. We should have we should have made it very clear that it was going to be. We should not have pretended it was only going to be advisory if it was going to be binding. You know the way that the the hard Brexit camp have sort of taken over the mandate. I just think that quite apart from the various kind of like funding issues and deceit and enormous contradictions, people going you know. People going, oh, we were never going to, you know, before last June, oh, we're never going to leave the single market. And now they are. I think there are enough factors that morally I actually would go, you know what, this is not the will of the people as promised. 
This has been commandeered. It's not, it is clearly not working. It should be stopped. And I, you know, I really, really, really resist this kind of, as I've, I've noticed a lot of people do, that sort of reliever category, which seems to have shrunk dramatically mm. in the last few months. Yeah. This sort of idea uh, that it's going to be um, uh, catastrophic, but we must do it. This kind of, this, uh, this I think, an idiot principle. Yeah. That doesn't matter how bad something is, you should do it because the people decided it. And I think that where this stops my position from just being entirely anti-democratic is that the way that the referendum was set up and what was promised and the way it was conducted and then the way that that mandate has since been used does not add up to a watertight democratic mandate. And I think if something is clearly not working, the idea of going over the cliff and going, well, we agreed to go over the cliff just on a on a real sort of personal level rationally and morally and emotionally and intellectually i just think that is insanity yeah i i agree my heart agrees with you my heart agrees <laughs> with me but you know in 19 in 1915 there were still women going around handing out white feathers to men who wouldn't go to the western front and and this the surge of a kind of patriotism that the referendum is inspired has not yet dissipated. And I think it will either turn into a kind of messy ending where we don't ever properly leave or someone will come along who is capable of articulating that case, Doreen, and who is capable of changing people's minds. Because at at the moment we absolutely, (laughs) yeah, yeah, well, you know, Prime Minister Linsky. No, but we, we lack we lack strong, charismatic political leadership in this country. And there is nobody who is able to unite the country in a way that I think would enable that to happen yet. Maybe they will come along. I really see a shift in Remain, as you're sort of saying, towards your position, Dorian, actually. Like, I, you're right, the relieve stuff where, you know, there's this big split where lots of people are prepared to see it through. I see much, much less of that. Lots of people sort of going, well, actually, no, if they're going to make this much of a shambles of it, I'm not doing it. For people like me who are always saying, you can't undo this without a second referendum, I feel that within Remain, you know, people like me have started to lose that argument, really. And I feel by far the wind is in the sails of those who go, no, you can do it without another referendum. You know, it's such a complete mess up. We can, if it, if it involves a stitch up in Westminster, fine, it involves a stitch up in Westminster. And the same with, with soft Brexit, that I feel that that has almost no support. I, I feel very few, little support for it, you know, by Remainers as well. Most people are just drifting back to just let's just reverse the whole thing. So I, I think that you're quite typical of a, of a broader sort of thing. But I think so. my, my addendum is also to try and kind of take some of the heat out of the, of the culture wars and actually look at all the reasons we've talked about in the past, like where did this vote come from? Because I think what's a, the really important argument to make is that you, they were not wrong to want a solution to very serious sort of, you know, sort of existential problems mm. about how they, you know, about how many of these people felt. But this is not the answer. And I find it kind of disgusting that this... Even though it's very clear that this will not be the solution to a lot of those kind of real kind of, you know, needs and desires and frustrations, it's being pushed as that. So even when you get down the line, these people are still going to be angry because they're going to felt let down and betrayed again. And so I do feel like what I don't want is for the Remainers to go to all the leaders, shut up. I do want to make this argument that, like, this is not what you think it is. This is not going to give you what you want. And I'm not talking about that 10 to 20 percent in this country and indeed in any country who are very nationalist, 
many of them considerably racist. I'm not talking about that, that kind of like hard rump of Brexiteers. You're not going to do anything with them. But I'm talking about all these people that maybe haven't changed their minds yet, but do have reservations and are thinking, well, is this actually going to do what we thought it was going to do? And the answer is no. And what I want to do is try and respond to their concerns in a real way. Yeah. And we need some radical stuff to do that, not just a millennial rail card. <laughs> well, and that's our show for this week. Thanks to Ros Taylor. And thanks to Ian Dunt, who is now going away to Merry Antarctica. <laughs> Listeners, don't worry. Ian will appear on our Christmas special in a couple of weeks, where our regulars name their high points and low points of 2017 AB, Anno Brexit. As ever, we will play out with Demon is a Monster, our smash hit theme tune by Corner Shop, and a roll call of some of our beloved Patreon backers. If you'd like to mention yourself, plus Romaniacs, mugs, bags and t-shirts, then visit our Patreon page via romaniacs.com and pledge us a small contribution. Until next time, here's a sign-off in Esperanto from listener Neil Roberts. We'll see you next week. So it's a big Euro thanks to Steve Lloyd, Helen Colburn, Naomi Benson, Rob Abram, David Whittam, Nick Appleyard, Kat Dukas, and David Vaughan Birch. Thanks from me too to Manfredi Bagioni, Yarek Zaba, Samuel On, Mark Allen, Chris Thomas, Chris Coulter, and Gemma Wood. And it's thank you from me to uh, Kristen Berg, Roy Wilkinson, Deirdre Cunningham, Lee Delahi, Jay Oeyavi, Simon Barry, Roland Min, Judith Lear, Michelle Lincoln. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you.